There are some uh, things that I would love to change about my everyday life if I could. Like my fingernails, for example. Do you have a problem with fingernails? Like, you know when you cut them, they always kind of fly everywhere in the bathroom? If you have a really good technique for how to contain your fingernails, I would like to hear about it. You could let me know. Because, see, I don't want to alienate my wife. I kind of like her. She's been around for 22 years, and I kind of like her. So I would like her to stay with me. So when I cut my fingernails, I try to make sure that it looks like I didn't cut my fingernails. So does anyone else deal with this? You, gotta, like, you have to, like, scour the bathroom when you're done to find And there's always one errant, like, shred of the nail that you don't find. It, like, it shoots it, bing, and ends up, like, on top of the mirror. And you find it in six months, and you're like, oh, my poor sweet wife. She must hate my guts. You know what? Like, I would love some help. With my, like, if someone could help me out. We haven't even talked about toenails yet. I'm not going to talk about that because we're in church. Like, well, I gotta, like, where do you cut your toenails? Like, do you lift your foot up on the sink? Like, anyway, it's, I could use some help with my fingernails. I, I could use some help with the 5.30 a.m. wake-ups. Do you know about this? Maybe some of you get up earlier than 5.30 a.m. It's pretty brutal. Like, you know, you can do it for a while. But we're late in the school year now, and doesn't it feel like it's just a bit of a grind? Like, here we go again. And the really sick part of it is, once you get into the rhythm of the year, you start anticipating the alarm and waking up before the alarm even goes up. Are you like this? Yeah, exactly. So my wife starts sighing around like 5.05 in the morning. I'm like, dang it, it's not even 5.30 yet. Can we just sleep in until 5.30? And then Saturday comes around, it's like the one day of the week when you don't have to set your alarm. And something always wakes you up, especially if you have little kids that are, you know, coming in and visiting. And if you have a wife who's hungry first thing in the morning, you know, it's just, you just got to wake up. It's a little bit depressing. Like, if we could change the, don't you want to stay, like, I sometimes want to rebel. Like, it's Wednesday, and I want to act like it's Saturday. Because Saturday's not as fun, because you're expecting to be able to not get up at 5.30. But wouldn't it just be great one Wednesday, once in your life, to not get up at 5.30? It'd be awesome. Like, I could use a little bit of help with that. Also, I could use some help with my lawnmower. I started it for the first time yesterday, and no joke, I stopped counting after 200 pulls. You're like, Todd, something's wrong with your lawnmower. I know, but I'm a preacher. I'm not a, like, small engine mechanic. I just keep pulling. Eventually, I started praying. I was like, gee, no joke. I said, Lord, I could use a little, I could use a little help. It's very hard to achieve anything, let alone starting a recalcitrant lawnmower. It's hard to keep your house clean. We clean our house one day a week, like that's the day where we like deep clean it. And then, you know, halfway through the week, it's dirty again. And perfect pancakes are all but impossible. I've been cooking pancakes longer than I've been preaching. And, you know, sometimes they're awesome and sometimes they're just kind of like, ah, and I can never figure out what I did wrong. I could use a little bit of help, you know, face to face with the challenges of everyday life. I sometimes feel like I could really use a miracle. And if you ever felt that way, then lucky you. Today we get to explore Mark chapter 6. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
he charged them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. Others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, uh, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted him put to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So he would like have him come and preach to him. He liked listening to him preach, but he didn't understand him at all. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias, his daughter, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with order to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid him in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moved to the shore. 
moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Isn't the Bible strange? Some pretty strange stories in there. It's very challenging, very strange, but also very inspiring. We see here in Mark 6 today some things to do and not to do if you want Jesus' miracleness to transform your everydayness. Right? That's your thesis. Find some things to do and not to do if we want Jesus' miracleness to transform our everydayness. This is built on seven big ideas from the seven key sections of Mark chapter 6. The first section is found in verses 1 through 6, and the idea is this. Don't let anything roadblock you from responding to Jesus in faith. Here's what happens in this first section. Jesus goes home to Nazareth. This is where he was born. This is where his family was still living. He was living at this time in Capernaum. You can drive from Capernaum today to Nazareth in about, I don't mean, if the traffic's not bad, you can get there in 45 minutes. If you go first thing in the morning, the traffic around Nazareth is pretty crazy. It'll take you like an hour and 15 to get right to the heart of downtown Nazareth. At the time this was written, the town of Nazareth was probably three, 400 people maybe. It's a town up in the hills, very small, very nondescript. Even to this day, there's not much about Nazareth that would make it the kind of place you really want to go. In fact, I always try to avoid it. The only thing I like about Nazareth is it has pretty good falafel. Other than that, it's just like kind of annoying and dirty. And you go to the shrines, and they're always packed, and it's just not that much fun. So in his day, Nazareth was kind of, you know, not really like a consequential city or anything. It's a small little town up in the hills. Probably would have taken him half a day to walk there from Capernaum. So he's going home. His mom lives there. His family lives there. Most scholars think that by this point, Joseph has died. He's not mentioned in this account, so we think that he's probably dead. But his mom and his family live there, and he's going home, and he does what he usually does. He teaches in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he is not very well received. Why not? Why did they not receive him? Well, we find out that it's because a prophet has no honor in his hometown. But I think there's something else at play here, and we find it in the original language. Verse 1, and he came to his hometown. In the original here, he came to his father country. And, of course, we ought to ask the questions about Jesus. What was his actual father country? Well, exactly. We know what his father country really is. We know what Jesus' rightful place really is. His rightful place is at God the Father's right hand in glory. Mark 16, 19 testifies to this when it tells us the story of Jesus' ascension. It says that he ascends right in front of their eyes and he sat down at the right hand of the Father in glory in his rightful place. If you want to see Jesus' miracleness transform your everydayness, my first suggestion to you is that you live like you're not from here. Jesus wasn't really from Nazareth. And that's why the people of Nazareth didn't really understand him. He was making these audacious, incredible claims. And I was like, wait a second. Um, isn't he that carpenter guy? He wasn't from there. The same is true for you and me, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, in the words of Philippians 3.20. The problem with living like this place is not your home is that as soon as your peers in this place that is not your home get wind of it, they're going to start treating you like an alien. They're going to start treating you like a stranger. And if you've ever been treated like a stranger, you know that it's not a very good feeling, which is why so many Christians struggle with integrating in this world of ours. They don't quite know where they fit. 
They have this sense that they belong to the high country, that they're from eternal Zion, that heaven is their home. But yet here we are stuck in the midst of this very real and mostly difficult everyday life. Where are you from? As one of Jesus' followers, you're from where he's from, and where he's from is the Father's right hand. You're not from here. And that's what was the tension when Jesus went home to Nazareth and his family could not receive him. Look at verses 2 through 3. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us also? Notice what they ask. Where? What? How? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? The practical realities are roadblocking Jesus' people from responding to him in faith. Those practical realities, like this doesn't make any sense. His peers cannot receive him because the practical realities are operating as roadblocks. And this is very true in our lives today. How many times have you found yourself stuck at a roadblock, and that roadblock is where the practical realities of your life butt up against the the supernatural imperatives of the kingdom of God? You're like, I want to take care of myself, but the kingdom of God says, it's not about you, right? Right? You want to respond in anger, but the kingdom of God says, turn the other cheek. You want to do everything you can to protect yourself, but the kingdom of God says, trust me, I got this. You ever found yourself roadblocked? It's a very real thing. Do not allow yourself to be roadblocked by the practical realities of everyday life. Because when you do, this is what happens, verse 3, and they took offense at him. The word offense here is snared, and they were snared by him. I want to make sure that we don't allow the needs of our practical life to cause us to miss out on the true reality that you are facing in Jesus. And Jesus is quite astonished at this, which I find astonishing because this is God in a body. But even he has a hard time dealing with the hardcore unbelief he faces in Nazareth. Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And I want you to notice very carefully what Jesus does. He cannot do many works there, and so he takes his ministry elsewhere. He goes into the surrounding villages and towns, and there he continues his mighty ministry work. The point here is this. What God looks for in us is belief. He's looking for belief. We see this testified to in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, where we read, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Will he find faith? In the earth. We need to never forget that Jesus hangs out with people who listen to him and who do what he says. This is what happens in verses 7 through 13. Take a look. And he called the twelve, began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. If you want Jesus' miracleness to transform your everydayness, point number two now, realize that you're the charged, sent ones who've been given authority, told what to do, and how to do it. 
See this here in the text? He charges the 12. He's not asking. He's charging. Okay? He charges the 12. And he sends them out two by two. This is a wonderful ministry model. It suggests the idea of team. He sends them out two by two. And beautifully, he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. He gives them authority to cast out demons. And he tells them to not overpack, which I find both encouraging and tremendously challenging. He tells them not to overpack because he wants them to have to trust him along the way. And he indicates that we're not playing games here. He says, look, whatever city won't receive you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And to this, verse 11, Matthew, in his account of this same moment, adds the following, Truly, I say to you, Jesus here is speaking, it will be more bearable in that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And do you remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Earthquake, fire and brimstone rained on it, complete devastation. So Jesus is saying, if a town will not receive you, my disciples, as you take my message of repentance to them, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for that town. If you want Jesus' miracleness to transform your everydayness, you need to learn to live like a bunch of charged, sent, authoritative evil crushers who trust God to provide, accept hospitality along the way, preach repentance because there is a judge, his name is Jesus, and in the words of Revelation twenty-two twelve, 12, he is coming quickly. That's tall order, right? You could preach a whole sermon just on that one section. You can unpack that whole thing, what it looks like to live like you're charged, sent, like you have authority over evil and you're meant to crush it. Like you trust God to provide. I mean, you could camp on that one for like half a day in a retreat context. Learning what it means to actually trust God to provide. Learning what it means to accept hospitality, which suggests humility. Because when someone gives you hospitality, the assumption is that you need the help. And how many of us really like to need help? Most of us would prefer to take care of ourselves. And I could go on and on and on, but for the sake of time, we'll continue in our text. You may be wondering as you think about Sodom and Gomorrah and as you think about Jesus' threat to these towns that may not receive his disciples, why does God need to judge anything anyway? You ever felt that way? Like, why is God a judge? The reason that God is a judge is because evil is real and because fools like King Herod are the norm, not the exception. Y'all know it's true. Fools like King Herod are the norm, not the exception. Let's paraphrase what happens in verses 14 through 29. King Herod, this is Herod, the northern king in Galilee. Okay, He's a fool, a noted hedonist, thinks with his sex drive. This uh, sequence where the daughter comes in and dances and pleases the men in the Greek means what you think it means. Okay, This is a gross moment. This king totally misses the boat on Jesus. No, no, it's John the Baptist. He's come back to torment me. Because people are like, no, 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 it's Elijah. Other people are like, no, 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 it's one of the old prophets. No, 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 I'm telling you, I recognize this kind of chutzpah. This John the Baptist come back to bother me. King Herod was an idiot. How do we know? Because he killed the greatest man who ever lived. Who's that? John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived. How do we know? Because Jesus himself says so in Matthew eleven eleven. He says that of the people born to women in the history of the earth, none has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Okay, Jesus himself is God the Son made flesh. He's not your normal human being. He's saying of 
all the normal human beings who ever walked the earth, John the Baptist is the greatest of all time. And Herod, this idiot king, kills the greatest man who ever lived. If you want Jesus' miracleness to transform your everydayness, point number three now, you need to make sure that you don't act the fool and that you recognize Jesus for who he really is. The question we ought to be always asking ourselves is this one. Is Jesus God in the body or isn't he? Okay, is he God, the Son made flesh, or isn't he? Jesus himself hits this a little later in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, when he asks his disciples point blank, who do you say that I am? This question rings down the ages to you and me. Who do we say that Jesus is? Is he God the Son made flesh or isn't he? Is it true that God exists? Is it true that he made everything that is? Is it true that our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, death, and curse when they rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden? Is it true? Is it true that we got banished from God's presence and that is the moment that death came into the human story? Is it true that every human who's ever been born since is born with a sin nature, a rebel against the God who made them to be his friend in the first place? Is it true that that is the great travesty that lies at the heart of all human angst throughout all time? Is it true that God, because he is so good, did not leave us alone, but in the fullness of time sent God the Son to become the man Jesus so that he might go to a cross to suffer and die in our place for our sin? Is it true that as he hung there, God the Father literally placed upon him, God the Son, the iniquities of us all and punished him in our place for our sin? Is it true that as he hung there, his righteousness was imputed to you and your sinfulness was credited to his account? Is it true that he really died and that on that first Easter Sunday morning he really rose again in victory, triumphing over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell once and for all? Is it true that he appeared to his disciples thereafter and ate real food and really hung out with them and yet was really resurrected and still had the wounds in his body, but he was fully alive? And is it true that right in front of their eyes he ascended to the Father's right hand where he sat down at his right hand in glory? And is it true that he's sitting there right now cheering for you? And is it true that he will come again in glory someday getting up from that seat to come back to make all things right, judging the living and the dead and inaugurating his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place, friend. Is it true? Were you built to be God's friend forever or weren't you? This is the central question at the heart of the human experience. And is it true that Jesus did all this for you from love? Well, yes, it is true. Because even though in verses 30 through 34, what Jesus and his disciples really need after they come back from their first missionary journeys is a break. Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So they're going on a retreat. They're going to a desolate place. There's some beautiful spots at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And they're taking their boat to go and chill for a minute because they're tired. And the second they get to shore, this throng has raced to that point because they saw them out on the sea. And they're like, that's the rabbi. And they get there to this moment of rest. And Jesus realizes that it is not going to be a moment of rest. And he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. If you want Jesus's miracleness to transform your everydayness, point four now, take a break once in a while, yes, but let compassion be what moves you. In the Greek here, when it says he was moved with compassion, it's beautiful. It literally says he was compassionated. How powerful is that? He was compassionated, like he was caffeinated, right? It's like something got a hold of him. He was compassionated. What does compassion mean? Compassion means to be moved in the inward parts. If you want to change the world or find your rightful place in it, get the love of God on your insides. 
This would change everything if more and more of us got the love of God on our insides. And, you know, while you're at it, if you want Jesus' miracleness to transform your everydayness, point number five now, work with what you've got. Don't always point to the immediate tangible impossibility. Don't be negative before you've even checked. Lift your gaze and be prepared to be amazed. These are the key salient points that are revealed in the feeding of the 5,000 contained in verses 35 through 34. All these people have been listening to Jesus. It's the end of the day. The disciples say, look, they're hungry. Send them away so they can buy some food in the surrounding settlements. Jesus is like, how about you feed them? They're like, what? What, are we going to spend 200 denarii and go and buy food and feed these people? I love the disciples. I keep saying it because they're fools just like me. They're like, we got nothing. Jesus goes, really? Have you checked? So they go check, and they're like, okay, we checked. We got um, five loaves and two fish. Thanks a lot, Jesus. And then what does he do? Verses 41 through 44. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish amongst them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men and their families okay five thousand men it wasn't just dudes okay they would say it was the men and the men came with their families so we're talking a vast crowd here so let me point out a few things real quick as i close verse 37 um if your default is to always point out the tangible impossibility you're acting like an unbeliever that's his disciples who are like we got no food we can't even go buy enough food Okay, so if you are one of these like detail-obsessed, A-type personalities, your closet is perfect and like arranged in an ascending color scale, this can be a point of weakness for you because you are prone to always pointing out the immediate, obvious, tangible impossibility. Stop it because that's what unbelievers do. Also, if you're the kind of person who tends to be negative before you've even checked, in verse 38, we got nothing, what are we going to do? Go and check. Verse 38, okay? Stop being, come on. Are you guilty of this? You're negative before you even check. You're in a bad mood. You've got no reason to be. Okay? Stop it. That's how unbelievers act. Instead, work with what you got. How? By copying your rabbi Jesus. What did he do? He lifted his gaze to heaven and he blessed the Lord. Instead of fixating on the negative and on the impossible, work with what you got. Lift your gaze to heaven and bless the Lord. Then get to work. Hand out what you got. And be prepared to be amazed. Why should I be prepared to be amazed? Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will they do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name... I will do it. This is so perplexing. We're told here that we will do greater works than Jesus did. And last time I checked, I haven't ever raised anybody from the dead, which is the typical objection to this verse. But then you think about this fact, that Jesus in his incarnation was one man, but after he ascended to the Father, he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell all his followers, which were out throughout time, from that time to this, number in the countless billions. And these countless billions of people who have organized their life around Jesus' way of life have literally changed the world by doing his works in the world and even here in Guelph. 
That's why we'll do greater things, because there are billions of us doing the works of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Well, in our immediate context here in Mark 6, there's a few things. He shakes hands, he kisses babies, he calms storms, and he takes care of his friends. So, if you want Jesus' miracleness to transform your everydayness, point number six now, um, shake hands, kiss babies, be ready to toil, but don't be scared because God himself is your friend, even if you don't recognize it yet because your heart is calloused. This is what happens in verses 45 through 52. Jesus sends the disciples on to Bethsaida. I've been to Bethsaida. The ruins of it are still there to this day. Bethsaida is amazing because, like, the road is the actual first century road. So when you walk into Bethsaida, you're walking on the actual road that Jesus and his disciples would have walked on. So he, he sends them to Bethsaida, and he's like, I'll join you in a minute. Why does he stay behind to dismiss the crowd? It's so cursory in the original language. What does that mean? It means he's saying bye to people. Why is he taking the time to say bye to these people? Because he cares. And he's shaking hands, and he's giving hugs, and he's kissing babies. And then he goes up to pray on the Mount of Beatitudes. Beautiful spot. I've been there many times. He's some solitude. He's praying. And then he notices his homies out on the lake. And you can literally see them from where he would have been praying. And they're working their way upstream to Bethsaida. Today, the water has receded from Bethsaida. But in Jesus' day, you could literally take the lake all the way to the foot of Bethsaida. And the wind that day is coming from the north, down the valley from Mount Hermon in Syria into the region of Galilee. And so they're struggling, they're toiling against the wind. Jesus is like, well, I'll go help them out. Takes a walk on the sea, freaks them all out. They're like, it's a ghost! Again, they're fools just like me and maybe like you. He's like, calm down! Gets into the boat, immediately the wind ceases, and they are completely amazed. And what does he say to them? Take heart, it is I. This is beautiful in the original language and very powerful. He says to them, be ye couraging, I am. Here's my favorite point from today's sermon. Courage becomes a verb when you know that Jesus is God. Be ye couraging, I am. Jesus is famous for saying I am. Before Abraham was, I am, John 8, 58. So make sure in your relentless loving of things other than the God of the Bible that your heart doesn't become callous to the point that there's no softness in it left to receive the Savior because that's why the Scripture tells us that they didn't know who he was. They still didn't understand about the fishes and the loaves because their hearts were literally calloused. And what do we know about callousness when it comes to love? We know that our hearts and our bodies and even the neurotransmitters in our brains get calloused from overuse. And so when you love things besides Jesus too much, too often, too many times, you actually get calloused to the love of God and you can't even recognize him when he shows up make sure that doesn't happen to you and worship team you can join me on stage because i'm almost done that's who this is that we're dealing with here make no mistake and don't miss it we are dealing here with jesus and he is the savior this is what happens in verses 53 through 56 when they land at genaseret and there's a kibbutz named genaseret today and you can actually go to the spot where they landed that boat and the crowd is there and it's a massive throng and wherever jesus goes they lay the sick in his way why? They're hoping that one of the tassels attached to his shawl, and these are the tassels that religious Jewish men would have had sewn to their clothing. Okay? They're hoping that one of these tassels that uh, symbolize, according to Numbers 15.38, the law and God's holiness, they're hoping that one of these tassels will touch them. And the scripture here audaciously says that everyone who touched one of these tassels was healed. And why is that the case? Well, because these tassels on Jesus are more than just a fashion statement. 
Because he's not just abiding in the law as prescribed in Numbers 15.38. He is God's holiness and he is the fulfillment of the law. So on his body, those tassels come to life and do the thing that they were made to do. They show forth the glory and the holiness of God because Jesus is the holiness of God. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law walking around in the dust of first century Israel. And friend, he is the one who's walking around in your heart today. So if you want Jesus' miracle to transform your everydayness. Final point seven here, just go wherever Jesus is. And once you know where he is, tell others because he is what they really need. So look, don't let anything roadblock you from responding to Jesus in faith. Remember that you are the charged, sent ones who've been given authority, told what to do and how to do it. So look, make sure you don't act the fool and that you recognize Jesus for who he really is and take a break once in a while and let compassion be what moves you and work with what you've got. Don't always point out the immediate tangible impossibility and resist the urge to be negative before you've even checked. Even instead, lift your gaze and be prepared to be amazed. And while you're at it, shake hands and kiss babies and be prepared to toil without fear because God himself is your friend, even if your calloused heart still doesn't quite get it. So just go wherever Jesus is and tell others where they can find him because he is what they really need. And those are some things to do and not to do if you want to have Jesus' miracle in this, transform your everydayness.